0: 169 prisoners are being brought for trial to this court in the city of london the old bailey
1: their
2: finding of the old bailey car bomb that killed one man and caused 178 casualties but
0: i'm enormously grateful to the jury sensational developments from the Ford hacking trial judge made his ruling today Huntley shook and turned pale third ira suspect to be acquitted of terrorist charges here in a year
2: sentence of the court is one of life
0: imprisonment please take the downstairs. The Old Bailey is the home of British justice. Its walls have formed the theatre to our greatest national dramas. To Oscar Wilde, George Blake and Christine Keeler. To Sutcliffe, Huntley and Warboys. The IRA and Al-Qaeda. Through the rows of metal detectors, up a marble staircase, past statues of long-forgotten judges, in a crowded, wood-panelled backroom, all day long, a team of court reporters dart between hearings. They work to file the reports that go out to newspaper offices across the country. No transcripts exist in British courts. They are not televised. Without court reporters, justice is not only blind, it is mute. And there are vanishingly few court reporters left. Court News is the last specialist agency to operate from the Old Bailey. They've been here since 1985. In their vaults lie first-hand accounts of every major case of the age. I'm Gavin Haynes. In this series, we're going to be going inside British trials, through the eyes of those who see justice being done every single day, the Court News team.
2: DNA, they found fecal matter on there. Oh. He'd be ramming up his own arse, oh, so That was a yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that one i Scott. <laughs> yeah. there, ramming a vacuum cleaner hose thing up his bum. <laughs> <laughs> that, was when, that was when we still used to talk to coppers, and he told me that. He told me that, basically, the badger, the fucking attachment. Okay, yeah, we found fecal, I mean, fecal she scrapings she on it, his <laughs> ass. No scrapings. No scrapings.
0: No. <sighs> In March of this year, a bunch of strangers turned up at the Isleworth Crown Court with a spring in their step. Most of them had never met before, though some had been in a WhatsApp group together. But here they finally were, a joyous reunion of sorts.
1: So I went in and I think I was expecting to see like, gangsters sort of, you know, like stereotypical, like overtly glamorous, really sort of, I don't know, almost dangerous looking people. And then so when I walked in and I sat, I sat in on my I was actually in the public gallery, because in Isleworth it's there's no press bench. And I walked in and when I realized who the defendants were, I, I was quite shocked because they were just really positive and hugging and happy and almost excited to walk into the dock. I was a bit like, do you realize that you're on trial? It was quite like I couldn't believe, I'd never seen such positive and almost like friendly people.
0: That's Sophie Kenyon, a reporter for Court News UK. By then, Sophie had been working for the company for 11 months, but she was already second generation. Her sister, Megan, had worked for co-owners Scott & Guy a few years earlier. And when Sophie finished her master's degree in theatre studies, she found herself in urgent need of paid work. Megan suggested she try her hand in the courts.
1: I still kind of get referred to as Megan's sister quite a lot, which I actually quite like. And how
0: would you describe the vibe at Court News?
1: Nothing will surprise you by the end of probably the first week that you work here.
0: Tell me about Scott and Guy. Are they pleasant overlords?
1: Yeah, Scott and Guy are, are great and how much they, they know. I feel like they are quite, they're like encyclopedias when it comes to crime and court cases. They can just sort of pick something out that, that happened and know it sort of back-to-back. Back.
0: That day, Sophie had been at Isleworth for a different case when editor Scott Wilford texted her. Apparently, the ex-girlfriend of boxer Joe Kazaki was on trial and the male wanted something on it. Not too many details, but it was something to do with money laundering.
1: I was reading up on it and it was five defendants all from all areas of London, all, all unknown to each other, and they'd been picked out almost at random, but going into the case, it wasn't actually that random. So, yeah, so I sat in, and I think it was about day two or three. They'd already opened the case, hence why we were sort of playing catch-up, and it was the prosecutor, Julian Christopher, KC, and I remember this day quite vividly because he was showing videos of one of the defendants, Beatrice Ortey, and we didn't see her face, it was her hands, but we were told that it was her. And it was just a video of her hands sorting and rummaging through hundreds of piles of cash. And it was all in like Tesco carrier bags. And it was just so odd, but it was quite daunting. Cause I don't think I'd ever seen that much cash before. You see it on films, but when you see it in on on that video, I could sort almost also just see the jury looking a bit like, oh my God, they really mean it when they say millions of pounds they were smuggling. It was weird because there was these hands and then I looked in the dock and Beatrice Ortie is honestly this beautiful blonde-haired, gorgeous white woman. I, was, I remember just thinking, you're not a stereotypical gangster money mule. You just look, you're 26. You look like you should be, you know, you, you just look really normal is what I'm probably trying to say.
0: For Beatrice Ortiz and the others, it had been a nice little earner mid-Covid. Take a bag of cash, about £1 million a go, transport it from Heathrow to Dubai. Fly business class, stay there three days, come back, collect £3,000. Or it was until late 2021, when the National Crime Agency started to come knocking on their doors. Even though there were five defendants at Isleworth, The true scale of the Dubai Money Mules operation was much bigger. There had already been other trials, and when they totaled it up, the NCA found they were staring at a syndicate worth over 100 million pounds. One man, a Mr Big figure by the name of Abdullah al afazi had been sent down for nine years. His chief organiser was a housewife from Leeds with two kids, and she was still on the run. Others had pleaded guilty and been sentenced. Now, The cops had corralled together the remainder and charged them at the Crown Court nearest Heathrow with transporting criminal property outside of the country.
1: So the charge was removing and transferring criminal property from the UK to Dubai, which basically meant that what the prosecution says that these mules took money that came from criminal activity... And by taking it over to Dubai, where they declared it, that instantly cleans it as such. And it is now clean money that the criminals, goes to the criminal bank account.
0: To convict, the Crown would have to prove that the money was indeed criminal property. And then, crucially, they'd also have to say that the alleged offender knew or suspected that it was. So for the five on trial, defending themselves was going to be all uphill. Apart from the videos of them sorting through the sack of cash, all had been arrested after declaring the monetary value of their suitcases to Dubai Customs. And that sum was often over a million pounds.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing I thought when I sat in was, how are you going to defend yourself on this? What is your defence? Because we've got evidence, hard evidence, that you all took those flights to Dubai You all handed over the money. You knew what was in the suitcases. How can you plead not guilty? But their line of defence was that they didn't know it was criminal, what they were doing. They believed it was all completely legitimate and that they were working for an actual company and that they wanted to make money because it was COVID and no one was making a lot of money and that at the end of the day they were just a bit stupid and foolish.
0: In other words, they were arguing the case that they didn't, in the words of the law, know or suspect that it constituted a benefit. Once you dug into the tale that the Dubai money mules all told, it did seem that they had been remotely controlled quite intensely. In total, 104 trips were identified by the National Crime Agency, and each had followed a remarkably similar pattern
1: so they would be told by michelle clark go to this coffee shop i think a starbucks and knightsbridge was mentioned quite frequently and you're either going to be on your own or another courier is going to be there to meet you and then you will be picked up by a chauffeur and they're going to come and collect you so they then get in the car and this driver would drive them to an unknown address We don't know where they would be picked up from. They didn't know where they were being driven to. It would just be houses, just a traditional townhouse in London. And they wouldn't get out the car, they'd stay in the car. And one or two men would come out the houses with these suitcases, they'd pile them into the back. Once the car was loaded, they'd drive them to Heathrow. Get to Heathrow, pop the bags on the trolley. Michelle Clark is then gonna send you your boarding pass should all be on your phone and a letter from Omnivest.
0: Omnivest was a fake gold trading company. The idea was that Omnivest was moving money east to Dubai and gold west to London. Omnivest didn't exist, but it was real enough to have its own website.
1: Get to Heathrow, they'd check in the bags at the business class check-in desk, where the bags would be weighed, I remember up to eight bags each, sometimes full of cash, that they'd check in and they would always be asked to take a photo of the bags before they left them to be like, this is where, they're here, they're in the check-in desk. Then they'd have a great time, go through to the airport lounge. They'd also always be up, they'd, they'd leave it quite last minute so they'd want it to be quite quick. So you get it Heathrow Check in your bags and then almost immediately you're going through to the gate. It's quite, they didn't give time for, I think, to be caught, just straight through, get on the flight. And it was a business class flight. So, you know, drinks and having a jolly good time. Once they'd get to Dubai, They'd have to collect their bags and they'd have to... I remember them talking about how they'd I think it was Beatrice Autie was describing how she'd get off at Dubai and everyone else would be walking through to, you know, to exit the airport, but she'd have to go through to a separate room for... to the place where it says to declare, so what you've got to declare. And that's when they'd get out the letter from Omnivest, open up the suitcases, show the money, and in the bags quite frequently it, there would be coffee bags and coffee granules and air fresheners i'm guessing just to quite literally put them off the scent
0: apparently this is a myth no amount of coffee grounds will throw a cash train dog off the scent
1: and once that was all you know until they got caught it would all go quite smoothly
0: having declared the money the mule would seal up their bags exit the terminal and be met by another contact
1: all they'd have to do is give over their bags, apparently it would normally just be a guy with a big car, hand over the bags and in return they'd be given £3,000 in cash, or $3,000 in cash. Given the details of their hotel they were staying in for the next couple nights, and over those next few days, Michelle Clark would send them their flight details for their returning flight back to Heathrow.
0: Michelle Clark is the missing housewife from Leeds. It was Clark who had recruited the five and Clark who'd updated their schedules, often hour by hour, on WhatsApp. She was a sort of travel agent for people who holidayed with £20,050 notes. It's not clear quite how she had parlayed a certain chatty charm into a role in the international money laundering market, but through a range of different methods, mainly friends of friends, she seemed to recruit a certain kind of person. And when you put them all together in a crown court, their collective vibe was unmistakably chintz, a bit towy, lip fillers, makeup, gloss. There was Amy Harrison, 27 at the time.
1: Amy Harrison came across really young, really naive, almost boisterous, I want to say. She was loud.
0: There was the aforementioned stunner, Beatrice Orty. Then there was the woman whose fate it was to be endlessly rehashed as Joe Calzaghi's ex despite that relationship having ended in 2009. Jo Emma Larvin, who was tried alongside her new partner, Jonathan Johnson. The pair now lived up in Ripon, Yorkshire.
1: Those two were interesting as well. I mean, they were were a typical couple, held hands. The minute they left the dock, they were holding hands. They had the same lawyer. They just, you know, they were a couple and they were inseparable. But they, they were quite removed from the rest of the group, actually, I'd say the other three were younger, but these two were, I think, um, Jeremy Larvin was 45 and Jonathan Johnson was in his mid fifties, but they'd always sit away from everyone else outside of court. They just didn't seem like they wanted to be involved with the others. And I think they wanted to make a point of we've been caught up in something that we don't we we never wanted to be caught up in.
0: And then, finally, there was Liam Raybone.
1: Who yeah, he did not like me. <laughs> he did not. Um I don't think he had a lot of time for the press or the coverage of it. He was very I could see his hostility. Every day he'd walk into court, he'd have a scarf wrapped around his face because we'd have photographers out there. He was an interesting character. He was quite He obviously came from a very nice background, very well-spoken. His dad was there every day. When he started the beginning of the proceedings, he was really well-dressed, boots, lovely. But by the end, he was in trackies. He kind of seemed to maybe have just given up a little bit. Like, this is a six-week trial. I'm gonna stick to comfort.
0: On the far side of the court was Julian Christopher, KC, a white-collar crime specialist and the lead prosecutor.
1: He's very tall. He holds himself very well. He's very friendly. He always used to smile at me coming into court, would hold the door, very polite.
0: To win, Christopher would have to fight a war of attrition. Bit by bit, across a big matrix of people, places, dates and receipts, his goal was to make every moment inarguable so that a pattern emerged that was, in turn, irrefutable. He would use the simplest of prosecutorial tools, cell site data that plotted where their mobile phones had been, flight logs, CCTV of them arriving at Heathrow.
1: He didn't just stick on one person at one time. He really accumulated it so you could see the, you could see the holistic timeline of where everyone was on certain days and how this really was a set out regime of, well, in a very, very clever organisation that had set it up.
0: The prosecution staked out four key claims. Three of them were easy enough. First, that the alleged mules got on the planes at Heathrow. Second, that they declared the cash at Dubai. Third, that they were paid for it. And then, only the fourth was seriously contested. That is, whether they knew this was a criminal act.
1: They denied it, saying they didn't know that this was illegal because they had these forged fake documents from Omnivest, which is the fake name of the gold trading company that was that the criminals set up. But I just remember being in court and thinking, how can you deny this? You you did take it to Dubai. You must have known that this is not real or this is a fake company because none of you were ever registered with HMRC or PAYE or signed any contract. So where is that validation of this company? All you have is a letter. So I think they were either really stupid or they knew exactly what they were doing. And I, the jury proves the, the latter, so.
0: Opposing Julian Christopher was a sea of white wigs. Apart from the couple, Joe Larvin and Jonathan Johnson, each of the defendants had their own barrister.
1: There was a lot of them. You sit there and they're always ahead in front of you and it's just like waves of wigs and old men, <laughs> like older men or... It can be quite overwhelming when you see that many barristers in one room. There's always a senior counsel and a junior counsel on, for each defendant.
0: Crucial to each one's defense would be figuring out ways to put distance between their client and what they could reasonably have known at the time. Some of them had Googled Omnivest, and on the WhatsApps, there was chatter between them, indicating they were trying to puzzle out what was legit.
1: I remember uh, Amy Harrison's mother. There was text messages between the two of them her mother was even researching it in into it thing going, oh, OK, no, it's this is a company. This is their website. So I, that was them, you know, their defense that they asked, you know, who am I working for? Do I need to what do I need? Here's my CV. It was I think from their account, they treated it like they were working for legi- a legitimate job and they were just blindsided by that.
0: On the stand, Beatrice Orsi got very emotional on this point.
1: There were definitely tears shed. Jonathan Johnson was very defensive on the stand, especially when he was questioned over his tax returns.
0: In English courts, juries are also allowed to give their own questions to witnesses via the judge. And in this case, they decided there was something about Johnson's story that wasn't clear.
1: And it was, why didn't you declare this on HMRC? And I remember when that was asked, his back got up a bit because it was a prominent moment for the jury to be thinking, okay, this guy did know that this wasn't legitimate because why wasn't it put on his, ha- his tax return? He didn't tell his accountant about it from what I remember.
0: Next, Joe Emma took the stand. And again, she claimed that she trusted her handlers, but she believed Omnivest was real.
1: She was quite neutral, wasn't as emotional as Bitch Sorty, but I remember her saying, This is the biggest mistake of my life. So, whether that's a proper, de- proper defence, I don't know. But that was probably where they were coming from. Some of that
0: genuine doubt over what was legal came to light in the cache of WhatsApp messages that formed the centre of the prosecution case. Most of these came from the chat group that had been made by the Leeds housewife, Michelle Clark. She'd called the group Sunshine and Lollipops.
1: Which is hilarious.
0: Clark liked to keep things mumsy and informal.
1: She's on this mass group chat saying, can anyone work this date? Or can someone pick up some suitcases from Beatrice at King's Cross at this time? Because she has to go home to Fulham.
0: Often people within the group would recruit their own contacts. Liam Rayburn had been brought in by his friend, Tara Hanlon, who was also arrested but pled guilty.
1: And it was messages between them, basically Tara saying, I've got a job for you, you interested? It was during COVID, no one was earning a lot of money. And Liam's like, yeah, what is it? What She's like, oh, couriering, business class flight, holiday to Dubai, you'll be back in three days, three grand in your pocket. So, you know, recruiting. And so Liam's like, yeah, okay puts him in contact with Michelle Clark. Michelle Clark is then messaging him, giving him the details, sending him, and it, it's almost, you know, it's very quick. Here's your flight, here's your boarding pass, here's, here's your letter from Omnivest that's declaring the money, that's saying that this is legitimate money, you're ready to go.
0: In their text conversations, Joe Malavin and Jonathan Johnson sometimes come across as panicked. When she first told Johnson what she was doing, he warned her. You need to be super careful. I like your enterprise, but be careful of the threat of clink.
1: They didn't take to this couriering so easily as the others did, in my opinion. A lot of messages of, is this legitimate? What do we think this is? And then there was a really interesting stream of messages when Joe Malarvin took her first flight. They they set her up. There's a message from Michelle Clark. Meet Amy Harrison at this Starbucks in Knightsbridge at this time. You will then be picked up by a chauffeur who will take you to this address in London, which they never knew. And you'll pick up these suitcases and they'll take you to Heathrow. And whilst that's all happening, Jeremiah Malarman is texting Jonathan Larson, like, Oh, it's okay. I've met Amy. I think she called her a bit annoying on the text to her to her partner. She says, Oh, she's a bit annoying. And then it's like every step she does, she recounts it back to Jonathan Larson, like at Heathrow, oh, I think actually this is okay. And he says something like, oh, that's a relief. Oh, it's okay. On the flight now. So you can see, unlike others, there is anxiety there and there is doubt to the fact that when there's messages when Joe Arvin's asked to take a second trip, Jonathan Johnson says, I'm coming with you this time because I want to know that this is legit.
0: They were routinely put up at what's often considered to be the top hotel in town, the Palm Jumeirah. There, they'd spend their three-day stopovers ordering room service and hanging out by the pool. Though, not everyone could relax into it. Beatrice Orsi apparently got homesick. She just didn't like the way of life out there, she said. And to compensate, she'd race through her brown envelope of £3,000 so that by the time she was ready for the plane back home, Much of what she'd earned had been ploughed into the economy of a place she didn't want to be. Someone was keeping the couriers under surveillance at all times. They were even told that airport and airline staff would be looking out for them. And the meaning was double-edged. Dubai is, after all, one of the world's biggest hub airports. It might have been tempting for some to hub off to South America with their million-pound carry-on.
1: They would put tags on their bags so that uh, I'm guessing the people in Dubai would know where those bags were at all times and have you checked them in? Because that was a key question the prosecution would always say is, but you put a tag on the bag, and who put the tag on the bag? I remember, Amy I think Amy Harrison, it was proven that she would put tags on her bag. They'd have to take a photo of the bags at check-in and send it to Michelle Clark. So what was all
0: the money for? Answering that is somewhat complicated. Above Michel Clark was another man, the Emirati Abdul Alafazi. When cops arrested him in December 2021, it was in a swish apartment in Lounge Square, Belgravia. Alafazi apparently had married into wealth in his native Dubai, but he didn't have any money himself, so some have speculated that he was compensating, that in a status obsessed society, He wanted to roll with his in-laws, and here, he found an easy way. In Dubai, until recently, it was the law that foreign companies could only operate with an Emirati national as their nominal owner. Alifazi dabbled in a few of these deals, then, sometime around 2019, he seems to have suddenly found money laundering. So, to answer the question, up the chain from him wasn't just one person it was a whole consortium of global organised crime. He was effectively an entrepreneur. People who had money to move would text him, and he'd take a habitual 10% of the total in return. The NCA are apparently still looking for Clark.
1: She used to work for Sky as some sort of retail person, and that's how she met Tara Hanlon, who is another mule who has previously pled guilty. And her role was basically to recruit the mules. She would be the one who people would be referred to, or she'd ask, so she'd ask she asked Tara do you know anyone who would want to do some couriering? And she was kind of the per the, the UK-based person who would sort it all out. She'd sort out the flight details. She had all the answers to the questions that people would ask, but she's not been located. No one knows where she is. They suspect somewhere in the Middle East, but that's not been proven, it's alleged. From what they said about her in court, she came across this very lovely, mumsy, nice woman who you feel safe with and who you could trust.
0: Amy Harrison was sentenced to two years in jail, suspended for two years. So, in effect, she was sentenced to no jail time at all. So was Jo Emma Larvin. And so was her boyfriend, Jonathan Johnson. And Beatrice Ortie? She was jailed for three and a half years. Not suspended. Because she'd handled the cash, as per the video, because she'd helped to load it into cases, and she'd also accompanied other couriers to Heathrow, the judge decided this was evidence of her deeper involvement. In her testimony, Beatrice Aughty had made a big play of how she'd once wanted to become a lawyer. How this was the shattering of that dream. A moment of madness. She'd also apparently been pen pals with a man in Texas on death row. She had, as law students sometimes do, been helping to secure his release. I want to be where you are, she told her barrister from the stand. Meanwhile, Liam Raybone, who'd done a similar circuit to the rest, was found not guilty. In the dock, Harrison and Orty both wept.
1: Amy Harrison, in, in Isleworth, there, there isn't I I don't think there's a press room. If there is a press room, I should find it. But I would sit outside waiting to go in with the rest of them and she would fill the room with her voice, talking and, you know, having a laugh with her barrister all the time. They were always giggling with each other, with, the bar- with her junior. I thought they, they could have been mates. They could have been two... Best girlfriends just sat in a corner giggling. And she was really just a, a loud, vibrant person. But when she then came to her sentencing, she was the complete opposite. I've never seen someone so small in the dock and look so frightened.
0: Sophie had seen the most human end of it, expensively quaffed women sobbing in the dock, the quick buck that had ended up very expensive. But in the scheme of things, this manicured and lacquered crew were as expendable as the county line's kids at the other end of the pipeline. The real story here was the mcdonalds of crime. A network in which even Abdullah al the Mr Big, was something of a bit-part player. The NCA reckoned that once you added in the European component, 200 million had flowed through his distribution chain. That's an amount of money that would make a notable bump on a small country's GDP figures. Guy Toyn co-owns Court News, so as its own Mr Big, I wanted to ask him whether 25 years at the Old Bailey had given him any sense of what happened to the cash once the mules had handed over their bags.
2: Dubai has become a paradise for money laundering. And what's happening is people are basically taking money, literally suitcases full of money out there, banking it in Dubai where no questions are asked, and then that money is recycled uh, into the vast building and hotel uh, projects out there. So it's interesting to think about Dubai and wonder how many of those uh, luxury five-star hotels are built with the uh, profits of a drug trade in the UK and all around the world. Drug smuggling, drug dealing is uh, still a growth area in the UK. We see businesses in the high street. We all perhaps know businesses in the high street where we ask ourselves why the business opened in the first place, and then how that business continues to run. And um, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's thought, "Mm, maybe there's something a little bit more uh, to this than meets the eye. In this country, uh, one thing solicitors are absolutely paranoid about in property transactions is money laundering. If you're buying property for cash in the UK, uh, you'll have to jump through a number of hoops Uh, before a solicitor will accept your money uh, in a property transaction. In Dubai, I think it's a case of no questions asked, which would perhaps explain why
0: Dubai has sort of sprung up in the desert so very, very quickly. Some of the money has been recovered from Abdullah al afazis assets, which were liquidated, and from the few suitcases that the cops had managed to nab. To keep the cash, the NCA had to go through a proceeds of crime process. That means that any citizen who has a legitimate claim on it and can explain its purpose is allowed to come forward and argue that it is wholly legal and entirely theirs. Sadly, no one did. There was one more question that jutted out. It was that, for all the cost to prosecution, apart from Beatrice Auti, the Sunshine and Lollipops gang received only suspended sentences. Of course, these were not violent people, they were unlikely to reoffend. but given the cost and the scope of the trial, I couldn't shake the feeling that something had gone wrong. Do you think that's fitting, given the sums involved?
2: Absolutely not. I would stick them all inside for a couple of years. To be quite honest with you, it's a disgrace that people can launder what is going to be the profits of drug dealing. Uh, in this way and think it's, you know, a harmless, victimless crime. Of course it's not. You know, a few bags of money on the plane. What difference does it make? Well, it's making a lot of difference to some people. It's making a lot of difference to the people whose lives have been ruined by drugs. It's making a difference to the people who basically fight over drugs territory and end up stabbing each other to death. I'm sure as we speak, I'm sure there's someone... Uh, flying off to Dubai or Abu Dhabi, having in mind a nice afternoon sitting around some air-conditioned hotel bar, all paid for on the profits of some faceless money launderer.
0: Do you think they didn't know what they were doing?
2: Well, if someone says to you, would you like to take a big suitcase full of cash to Dubai, what would you think uh, the purpose of that was? Perhaps someone just knew a lot of spending money on holiday? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course they knew what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. If you look at some of the text messages that were exchanged between them, it's obvious they knew what they were doing. And the jury found that they knew what they were doing. So uh, yeah, to say it's, you know, somehow they weren't really complicit. Somehow it was all oh, oh I didn't know Ooh, it's just a complete
0: nutty joke and they know it is as well. A suspended sentence is a funny thing in that it's like having no sentence at all. The the sort of binary line between you will serve seven years and you will serve seven years suspended is massive, and yet these are treated as almost the same thing.
2: Well, you say suspended sentences are a funny thing. They've never made me laugh. Uh, To be quite honest with you, you get suspended sentences handed out to people for quite serious crimes. Uh, Crimes of quite serious violence are sometimes met with suspended sentences. The idea of suspended sentences is that it literally is suspended above your head. And therefore, if you commit a further crime, you will be sentenced for that crime and the one previously. Um, I've sat through a load of cases where someone is in breach of a suspended sentence and funnily enough, the judge hasn't even activated it. The likelihood of them being caught with another suitcase full of catch is, of course, absolutely minuscule. So the suspended sentence means precisely nothing. Are suspended sentences overused then? As far as I'm concerned, yes, they are. The problem is, of course, is that It all boils down to the fact that there are too few jail places in the UK and therefore there's a huge pressure on the judges to try and pass as many non-custodial sentences uh, as possible. But of course you see people coming back to the courts again and again and again with various non-custodial penalties, suspended sentences, uh, community terms, All this, you know, a fine here and there, detention and training order, all this sort of nonsense before, of course, they go on to commit a really, really serious crime. I'm afraid there's a sad inevitability about it all.
0: Fresh from the Old Bailey is produced by me, Gavin Haynes, in partnership with Court News UK. Sound mix is by Jonathan Webb. You can follow us on Twitter. Court News also has an excellent weekly substack with the podcast Killers of the Old Bailey, featuring Britain's most experienced murder case reporter, Granwell Gray. The British legal system makes it hard to contact those involved, so if you have personal knowledge of aspects of the Dubai Money Mules case, or of any other cases we've covered, contact us through our Gmail, freshfromtheoldbailey at gmail.com. Discretion assured.